Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Welcome back to another great episode. I am so excited to bring Dr. Alim Naji back to do another installment of Tips for Junior Faculty. This time he interviews Dr. Zainab Najarali, who is a senior trainee at the time of the recording. She is going to be taking us through her reflections on what makes a great clinical teacher. On the flip side, we have Dr. Walter Epic, who is an epic kind of guy. <laughs> The pun totally was intended. Dr. Walter Epic is a well-known educator who has done both clinical education and now into a new phase of his career as a PhD scientist, looking at how we can actually up our games through learning conversations. So I invited him to be on this podcast as a guest just to hear his thoughts on this topic. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode of Dear Supervisor Clinical Edition. We're really excited for you to be listening to the Spark podcast today. It's your host for this segment, Alim Nagji. I'm very excited to be here today with Zainab Najrali, who's uh, one of our excellent uh, CCFPEM residents. I'm going to turn it to her so that she can introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her. Hi, yes, my name is Zainab. Um, I'm a CCFPEM resident in my PGY3 year at McMaster University. I'm so excited to be here talking to you today. And being a McMaster Medical School graduate, I hold this podcast very close to my heart. <laughs> so we have Dr. Nedrevely here as a learner to talk to us as teachers and really share her insights from what has been a long and hopefully not too arduous journey through the McMaster education system. And so we thought for today's segment, we'd actually flip it a little bit and talk to a learner who's now in the process of very soon transitioning to be a faculty herself and to get her perspectives on what are the things she's going to carry forward on her journey. So Zainab, tell us, what wisdom do you have to share? Oh, no. Reminding me that I'm becoming a faculty soon just really scared me. But, <laughs> but yes, so I have five main teaching points that I would like to impart in terms of my wisdom from a learner to a teacher. And so the first one is anchoring around a case. Number two is observation, both direct and letting them observe you. Number three is asking the right questions, where we'll talk a little bit about pimping, one of the very contentious <laughs> topics. Number four investing in teaching, and five, generalizing the topic. So I guess with the first point, building around a case, this seems pretty obvious, and I've seen the difference in my retention when I've learned around a case versus when I've just been taught more didactically, even if it's at the bedside. So for example, I remember when I was on my very first block of ICU as a PGY2 learner, very fresh, and I had an excellent talk on an approach to vasopressors. And I loved it. I thought it was so well organized. The fellow did such a great job. And then next week, I forgot 70% of what I'd learned, remembered a good 30%. And the staff who did it did such a great job teaching me, but I wasn't able to make enough connections with the content to truly solidify the teaching point. And so then I fast forwarded to a few months ago when I was on CCU, and I had a patient who was on multiple pressors for different reasons. And then I got teaching about vasopressors right after that. And this encounter has yet to be forgotten and the teaching points have yet to be forgotten. 
And I think this just reminded me that there are different ways for us to learn. But when we think about this, I describe this as experiential learning. And it's like with a healthy balance of both process and content. And in that moment, you know, your synapses are really firing when you're making connections between what you're being taught and what's in front of you. And that's why I think having context when you're teaching is super important. And the literature would support that, right? And when we look at studies around didactic teaching, that's one of the big challenges for those of us who have to deliver a lot of lectures. And so that's something that I've actually taken even into the lectures that I do to turn around and say, how can I make sure that I'm anchoring these in different clinical vignettes or scenarios, or that I can share my experience as a clinician of the things that I've seen so that as people, as humans, if you look back in our history, we're a narrative species. We love a good story, right? That's why drama sells. <laughs> and I think that's why it's so important that you can tie these things together, like you pointed out, Zainab. That's a great point. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you've all Hariri and Sapiens are the same thing, right? We evolved because of gossip and good stories. So that really does, <laughs> that does make sense. I'll go into my second point, and that's letting learners observe you and then observing your learners. So as a senior resident, I now found it even more useful to just be able to observe staff as they do their daily job, whether they're asking questions to patients, I want to see how they ask really good questions on how they skillfully articulate, you know, when they're trying to get pertinent positives or negatives or get a history, how they conduct a physical exam, getting to watch them in the room, how they arrange the bed, what they do in terms of the setup for a procedure, how they lay out their tray when they're doing a procedure, how they break bad news to a family. All of these interactions are great to observe as you're becoming more senior because you really know now what you don't know or what you need from the interaction. And this is your opportunity to really get that and, and steal these moments from your, from your preceptors. When you're a junior, you watch a lot. But at this point, you're just filling your mind with all this information. And then as you become more senior, these are still important, but often we don't get to observe anymore. When you're on a really busy consult service, I'm doing all these consults and no one's watching me. Or if I'm in a new situation, for example, when I've been on palliative care in the past, I could potentially not have a preceptor tell me how to break bad news, but that's going to be my job for the next month. And so... You know, there are some situations where residents are super, super monitored, like in the operating room. And there are some where nobody knows what they did all day long until they're running the list at 4 p.m. And so I think the value of getting to observe your staff is very, very useful. And I think on the flip side, having staff still observe you, even though you're senior, is extremely helpful. This is great for when you're actually giving feedback later on and you have actual points to draw from so that the feedback also becomes more meaningful. And I think that when residents actually are observed, they can take the feedback a bit more meaningfully because they know that it came from a place of true objective measures. You know, it's really interesting to hear that there's some value in observing me. And I think of myself as a clinician, as an educator, and I always think, man, it must be so boring to just watch me do my job. So how is it that if I'm going to have you observe me for a portion of it, how do I make that high yield on a learner so that you're not shut down, passive, not absorbing anything? How do we make that so that it is still a dialogue and still an active learning experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's asking the learner, and this goes into objectives, which I'll talk about later, but I think it's really about knowing the objectives of the learner. So if I'm new to the emergency department and I've never seen somebody take a history, this would be something that would be useful and I wouldn't shut off. But as a PGY3 resident, watching you take a history for chest pain might not be that useful for me, but seeing how you set up the room for a lumbar puncture in a patient that might be challenging to do or in a room that's small, that would be very helpful for me. So I think it's asking the learner, hey, is this something that's on your set of objectives? Would it be helpful for you to watch this? I think that would be very helpful. 
Or if you know that you do a great job with a neurological exam that maybe is a level up from a classic neuro exam going, hey, I actually think that this would be useful for you. Would you want to watch this? The learner probably won't say no, <laughs> but asking in terms of their objectives would be really helpful in terms of knowing when it would be beneficial to observe and when it wouldn't be. I think there's also a component of foreshadowing what you're going to be doing. So I think one of the things is also if I have that conversation with a learner before we go in the room, before we go in to start that IV together or, or ambulate this patient or work through a case together, whatever we're going to be doing, if I actually role model and specify beforehand that I'm going to be demonstrating this behavior and then we're going to talk about it afterwards, it sounds like that'll take it from that passive learning to more active learning. Totally. That would bring in the context for the teaching point later on in the shift. And, you know, if I know that I'm coming in to watch how you set up the room for an LP and not necessarily how you landmark, that's totally different. And then I'm looking for those little cues and those little teaching points as I'm observing. You know, I think your second point about observing a learner is one that is coming to light quite a bit in the literature right now. When we look at the transition to competency-based education that's kind of coming through medicine and many different areas of specialty as well, there's an increased focus on, as a faculty member, being able to observe components of what the learners are doing. How can we do that in a meaningful manner? What are some examples of times that you've had that done where you've said that this was a very useful experience? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually had an amazing experience when I was on my palliative care rotation about one or two years ago. And it started off with the initial thing that we talked about, which is they let me watch them break bad news, which was awesome to watch because it's very difficult to do in these situations. And then I had them observe me and they really sat there and did not interject, did not say anything and truly watched me go from beginning to end. And then at the end of it all, after we left the room, broke down everything that was said. And, you know, this even goes in terms of assessments. I just had an oral ex practice oral exam the other day when I was on shift in the department and we went through the entire exam and then I got feedback at the end. And this was another example of direct observation. You're watching how I perform in terms of an examinship situation and then going through all the points at the end. I think that it's high yield when you actually sit down and debrief about it and really go through it all and ask the learner, where did they struggle? What do they think they did well? What kinds of things do they want feedback on instead of observing them and then maybe not saying much about it after or maybe just talking about it very quickly and superficially. I'm hearing that as an educator as well. We need to be able to relinquish some of that control. We need to have trust in our learners to be able to do it. Because one of the challenges I felt early on when I started doing direct observation in the room myself was that the power dynamic would shift. And that so between me and the patient or the client and my learner, the, they would immediately turn to me to kind of verify or acknowledge. And the learner would then would shift to me for advice as well. And so it created a different dynamic. And so being explicit before we go in the room saying, this is your room, you're gonna take over this breaking a bad news, for example, and then being more of a passive observer in that moment, taking notes. I kind of think of myself as like the wildlife photographer in that moment, right? Hidden in the fields, uh, you know, behind the reeds with my zoom lens, and then being able to afterwards decompress and say, okay, these are things that I noticed. It seemed like you struggled with this. How did you manage this? You did an excellent job doing that. And then being able to share my notes afterwards, but it requires me to give up some control to the learner. And I think that's a powerful piece in this. Totally. And I think it's really hard. I mean, as a senior resident and soon to be junior faculty, I've been doing a lot of virtual simulation. And 
you know, one of my great mentors was like, you need to just step back and not say anything during these simulations, for example, and just let them struggle. And that's kind of the same idea when you're observing them, you know, at the bedside, you just have to step back and let them struggle and let them make the mistakes. And you can correct them later or go back in the room and speak to the patient later or whatever needs to be done. But in that moment, like we really will learn as we are uncomfortable and as we struggle, and you'll know where we need help by watching us go through that painful moment. So we've talked about how we need a case to really solidify our learning. We've talked about the values of observation, both the learner observing me and me observing the learner. How do I use questions as an effective teaching tool in these moments? Because that's something I've really struggled with. And I've heard a lot of feedback, both good and bad, from learners about. So I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about the use of questions as a teaching modality. This is probably my favorite point. So one of my favorite preceptors is an emergency medicine physician. And one day he asked me if he pimps or asks too many questions on shift. And I replied, yes, of course you do, but it doesn't feel as bad. And I wanted to figure out why I wasn't as uncomfortable or nervous in these situations versus with other staff. And it was because the pimping or questioning really had a purpose. He would ask me general questions and then more specific questions, and it allowed him and I to brainstorm about what I knew about a topic. So this starts to activate the knowledge I already have. Then I was able to apply this knowledge, now that it's been activated, to answer further questions that maybe I wouldn't have been able to answer had we not had that prelude of questions. Because now I understand where we're going, the physiology is making sense, the mechanisms are making sense to me. And then finally, when I get to a point where I'm unable to answer a question, this created a space for both the teacher and myself to identify what I don't know and then fill this gap. And the great thing about this is I have confidence in this system because I wasn't put down throughout the whole process. There were questions I got right because we started it quite simply. And then I feel comfortable being uncomfortable and not knowing things. And then all the while I'm learning this in new information that now I'm being taught and I'm fitting it into a schema of knowledge I already have. And I think that really improves retention because I understand the topic and I understand the new information. So it sounds like scaffolding the learning is a really useful piece of this. How do we avoid questions that are traps, though? And how do we avoid the questions that then make learners feel like they don't know the answer and then they go from stressed learning to stressed not learning? Totally. And I think it's the idea that you mentioned. I'm going to ask you some questions about this topic. And, you know, when you get to a point that you might not know the answer, we're going to start to fill these gaps or try to work through what makes sense in terms of what the answer would be. It's less about, hey, I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. When I get to a question that you're uncomfortable with, I'm going to tell you, now go read about this in your spare time and move on from the shift. Those don't work. That makes us perspire on shift and then want to cry at the end of it. (laughs) That's good to know. I think that in that is also questions that don't have a single response, right? And that's something we've kind of touched on before. This idea that if I'm asking you a question with a specific intent as well, and I think it's also the intent to learn versus the intent to interrogate. And those kind of seem like different philosophies that you're bringing out in some of the things that you're talking about as well. Totally. I think it's this Aristotle model, right, of asking questions to get to an eventual answer, but doing it in a very methodological way. I was actually reading some tips from a book online called The ABCs of Learning and Teaching in Medicine, and they had a few pointers about teaching, which I thought were really useful. The first is giving the learner time to answer the question, so not speaking too soon. They might not know it in the first 20 seconds, but give them time, or if you think that they might come to it, say, we'll come back to it after this case. Following up a poor answer with another question instead of just accepting a poor answer. If it's not a good answer and you want them to dive deep a bit, maybe give them a hint or, you know, 
a life-saving device at this point. <laughs> life-saving device. <laughs> <laughs> Try to reel them in. But don't just move on from the poor answer because if you're building and scaffolding, you're not going to get to where you want to get if they already have a poor answer at baseline. And then I think the using a counter questions for when a student asks a question is useful, but I don't think the answer should be look it up and get back to me. Mm -hmm. I think you can ask a counter question to help them understand the process to figuring out the answer, but I don't think dismissing a point of curiosity is very useful. For virtual interactions with learners as well, be cognizant of the fact that the time you have to leave is so much longer than in real life. And that silence may feel unnatural. And especially for fast talkers like you or I, that silence may seem very odd. And sometimes I actually count in my head 10 long, painful seconds with Mississippi to make sure that I've given the learner sufficient time to answer the question. And it also kind of decompresses a little bit that moment, reducing some of that tension. So I really like that tip. Yeah, that's a great point I'll probably use on my virtual simulations. The first one, I think I interrupted everyone after 10 seconds, maybe one second, but now I've, I've been learning. And I think they used to teach us that in medical school too, right? When you ask a patient a question, be okay with some silence. It might make you uncomfortable, but it might actually help you yield answers that you want. So now that you're transitioning to a faculty member, how are you going to reflect back some of the principles of investing in learners that you yourself were the recipient of through your training? I think there's a few ways to go about this. If you're working with a learner for a long period of time, I've really found it beneficial when my preceptor sits down with me at the beginning and talks about what I would like to learn. What are my objectives? What are some things that I want to see this shift that they could potentially bring me in on or teach me about potentially? I think throughout your interaction with your learner, you should also make sure that you go back throughout your time together and have checkpoints to make sure that they're meeting these objectives. So I think that's the first thing. It helps create a relationship between you and your preceptor, and then it helps orient the shift or the week or the month, whatever it might be. And then I think the next thing is really preparing for your teaching. So if you taught someone about DKA one day and you thought it was a solid six out of 10, go home and really look up what you felt you missed write out a, a narrative of how you want to teach or pull up documents and save them on your phone for the next time you teach about DKA because it'll really elevate the next time you teach. And when you constantly build on that, you'll have these great teaching moments that you can always bring to students. And we are aware of those teaching moments. When we're residents or learners on shift and you're telling us about a topic that you've taught before, we know. We can tell that it's organized and it's structured and you've thought about it before and you've taught it before versus when you just come up with a new thing to teach about because that's usually a few seconds or minutes and it's quite disorganized. I think there's a great example of this. I was actually working on a shift the other day and we had a patient with a foreign body ingestion and then we had another one with a foreign body ingestion and she left me a piece of blank paper and one side said red flags for foreign body ingestions and the other side said went to scope and she said, hey, we have a few hours left together, fill this in. And then when we have a spare moment, we're going to go over it. And so I filled it in when I had time. And then at the end, after we have activated my knowledge, she started to fill in gaps. And I knew that this was not the first time she had taught this topic. It was extremely organized. It was logical. It was not intimidating. And it really did help me solidify points. This is because you could tell this staff had really invested in my learning about this topic. That also ties back to your point about how to use questions effectively, because perhaps giving you a question, giving you a piece of paper, or we've talked about before opening up a Google Doc and giving you the time over the course of an interaction to fill it out, also removes that stress of being observed. 
and then allows learners time to maybe add in resources that they already have or are aware of through the course of your interactions. And so it can kind of decompress that high stakes teaching moment and make it much more valuable and useful while then also leaving them with something that they can take home at the end of their interaction with you. So I really like that. It was a great moment and it really did remind me that there are multiple creative ways to create teaching moments at the bedside and it was such a great example of that. How do we extrapolate learning from a single encounter into kind of larger principles? Because that's something I find difficult. Sometimes I'll have a learner where, you know, we, te we talk about something and then see another case or another patient with, which really requires the same principles we've just talked about, but they're somehow able to apply it in one scenario and struggle in another. How do we approach that from the faculty perspective to make sure that we're generalizing our points appropriately? Well, Dr. Nagy, that brings me to my last point. <laughs> it's <laughs> almost like this is scripted or something. <laughs> <laughs> so this can be tied to the foreign body example I just gave. We had a patient who had an esophageal food bolus, which is food stuck in their esophagus. And so we discussed the management plans about it and the next step. And then we didn't stop here. We went back and then we created an approach to ingested foreign bodies. And this allowed us to create a global framework for the presenting issues. And so when you add to this, I was able to not just understand how to manage one foreign body ingestion, I was able to understand when it's important, when it's not, when we want to scope, when we don't. And then I was able to add an approach in my head about multiple types of foreign bodies. And thus I was able to generalize the teaching point of foreign body ingestion. And so I think it's really important to go back and have a general teaching point. If you have a chest pain who ends up being pericarditis, Maybe go back and have an approach to chest pain. What do you ask? What are your physical exam findings? Different investigations based on the different presenting complaint. And I think that really allows you to hone in on the specific topic at hand and also create some generalizable teaching points. I think what's also important is to ask your learner to summarize what they learned. This forces learners to show that they've processed information that they just received and for you as a teacher to see if they really understood it. It's very easy for us to smile and nod. <laughs> We're great at it, but it doesn't mean that we actually know what happened in this teaching moment. And maybe it's your teaching and maybe it's our understanding of the topic, but it means we have to take three steps back if I don't show that I understood a topic and maybe reorganize the teaching because it, the worst thing is you spend 20 minutes at the bedside or in the classroom and you teach a topic, everyone pretends they know that they understood what happened and then everyone goes home with zero new knowledge. And I think forcing a summary is a very great way to show that the learner has actually taken what they need to from a teaching moment. Hmm, using summaries to enhance learning. I feel like this is an optimal time to segue into <laughs> our summary. So let's summarize the five tips. Yes, yeah, so just a quick recap about what we discussed. Clinical teaching can be difficult. There are ways to make it easier and more effective for both the teacher and the learner. So my top five tips would be to build it around a case and ensure your teaching has some content. Number two, take the time to observe your learner and let your learner observe you. Number three, use questions or pimping effectively to identify knowledge gaps and frame your teaching accordingly. Number four, invest in your learner by preparing and constantly improving your teaching methods. And number five, generalize and summarize your teaching point.
Those are some great tips. I, I really love that, especially the end about that idea of generalization. You know, I think about how long your training is to become a health science professional. And no matter how long your training is, it's impossible that you're going to see every potential permutation you're going to see in the future. So we need to really build learners who are adaptable to the environment and the challenges that are going to come forward. Something like the COVID pandemic, no one could have predicted. And yet we all had to adapt to it as clinicians and educators. And so we need to create learners who can recognize new scenarios and apply those general principles. So that's really great. Zainab, is there anything else you want to want to say to uh, new faculty who are out there, or old faculty, anything else you want to add as that learner perspective? I think those are my five tips. And I'd like to thank all our teachers who've been, you know, training us throughout this process and rolling with the punches. It's been a great experience getting to be at McMaster and learn from such amazing mentors. A special thank you to all our teachers, especially during this crazy COVID times with the transition to so many different environments, including virtual platforms and adaptations to curriculum. Um, our teachers have been tireless and have done an amazing and fantastic job. So a special thank you to all of you. We hope you enjoyed this segment and hopefully we'll see you back for the next one. Thanks a lot. Okay, so on April 28th, 2021, we're going to be having the first Faculty of Health Sciences Digital Women's Symposium. We're so excited to bring you this synchronous conference event that will be happening on that afternoon. We have so many amazing speakers. You'll have to check out our website to see them all. But we have politicians, academics, and healthcare experts all lined up to really consider the question of how we might be able to help women lead in healthcare and beyond. So definitely come and check it out. If you identify as a woman or as someone who is an ally to women, definitely this is the event for you. Hello everyone, my name is Teresa Chan and you've heard my voice before, but I have another friend with me from afar that I'm bringing as a guest. Dr. Walter Epic is here with me. Walter, do you want to say hi to everyone? Yes, I do. Hey, Teresa, how are you? All right. And to the crowd, don't forget them. Yes. The Hello, everyone. Yeah, welcome, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for signing on and, and, and joining us. All right. So, Walter, can you tell us a little bit about where you are right now? Because you're actually quite far away on the other side of the pond, in fact. Yes. Well, when you're listening to this, I will be in Dublin, Ireland, and having assumed a new post at the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, also RCSI, and chair of the Center for Simulation Education and Research. And very excited to be joining you and sharing a little bit about my work and my perspective as both a clinician and an educational scientist. Very cool. And so it sounds like you have in your unit now that you're in charge of, it sounds like it's a merger between our merit, which is our education research team, the SIM Center, and then some level of faculty development, right? So it sounds like you're like a big office that kind of houses a bunch of those different things together. That's a fair summary. Yes. Okay. Very cool. Well, we're contextualizing for our faculty members who understand what our local structures might look like, but it's kind of cool to hear how other things are run at other places. So I asked you to be on this podcast because I'm a big fan of your scholarship work. And so you've been quite a prolific scholar prior to doing your PhD, but then you went and did your PhD and you focused in on a very cool topic, which I think is really awesome, is how we use conversations and how we use engagement through those conversations as learning experiences. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to me a little bit about that? I mean, your, your Twitter handles even learn through talk. So... <laughs> I yeah. love it. Uh, you're like consistent, brand consistent. But uh, yeah. tell me a little bit more about that concept. What What is that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I come from a simulation education background and have been pretty steeped in healthcare debriefing for many years. And as I began the PhD journey and was looking for a program of research that was coherent 
and linked uh, thematically. I wanted to build on this experience and debriefing while also extending my feelers out into the workplace. And the, the unifying aspect is talk. And talk is, we can just define as the verbal and nonverbal content of our conversations and the social implications of that. So that also highlights my stance as an educator and as a researcher, which is learning is a social process, highly dependent on the interactions we have, both with peers, across professions, from supervisors to, to trainees and back and forth. And the particular focus on talk came during a clinical shift. And I think as a clinician, a lot of the research ideas I have come from those experiences. And I was on shift at night in the pediatric ER in Chicago, where I had worked for 15 years. And uh, we had a very sick child come in, a child who had had lots of previous surgeries and was followed very closely by our surgical team. And child was presumably in a sepsis picture. And I turned to one of the residents and I said, I need the surgical resident to come now. And it seemed to me that a minute later, that surgical resident was standing behind me and we did what we needed to do for the patient who stabilized and was admitted. And afterwards, I sort of debriefed with the resident and I asked her, what exactly did you say to the surgery resident on the phone? Because very often residents struggle to convey urgency and to convey clearly what's going on in a way that is persuasive to the other person. And she described what she had said, and she had sort of ticked all the boxes in a very expert way. And it started intriguing me as to how young doctors learn to have those types of conversations. And that's really how I embarked on this exploration of talk as a medium of learning, not necessarily as a competency, but as a medium of learning both in educational settings, such as healthcare debriefings, where we label the conversation as one that's related to learning, but also in the workplace, where these workplace conversations, such as workplace telephone talk with other clinicians, have intrinsic learning potential. And that really is the origin of that, that whole line of, of research, which is ongoing. Very interesting. You and I obviously are friends for a reason because my residency research project was on consultations in the ED and how those are encounters that need educational modification. And so I had devised this little mnemonic to help people peak, right? Prepare, identify yourself, the patient, you know, the other person, make sure you call the right person. What's the question? What's the urgency? What's the educational modification? And then debriefing afterwards to, to make sure that you understood the case either as, uh, as someone who's consulting someone else. And so what you just said was exactly what we want people to learn. We kind of protocolized it. And in retrospect, I, I know it's a much more complex jumble of things that we have to do that hopefully your work can bring clarity to all of that because there's so many social forces that are at play. There's power dynamics, in fact, as well. There's conflict and a Tower of Babel phenomenon of, you know, what you say in, for ABC for some people means one thing. For the orthopedic surgeon, it means something else. <laughs> you know, like there's all these crosstalk and short forms that we sometimes have within our microcultures in, in all of healthcare. What, we say, what the nurses say a certain way with the ICU nurses, they just see things differently. I think across all of our health professions, we have so much lingo that it's crucial that we have a common tongue in sometimes, but then also appreciate that how we can learn from each other when, when we don't get a chance to do that. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And I'm also a great fan of your work, which I've cited. 
<laughs> um, because it's it's important and it influenced my own thinking. And the thing that was surprising to me when I looked at the intrinsic potential of workplace telephone talk was that a lot of residents described learning these skills not necessarily because they were taught by other people, but it was through repeated conversations and in interaction with their conversation partners that they learned these things. So just to give you an example, mm -hmm. people who are very advanced in their, in their training, let's say someone who'd been in, in residency or fellowship now seven or eight years, they would highly value when someone would call them and give them a quick one-liner or a statement to frame the conversation so that they would know exactly what they needed to listen to and what the clinical question was. And more early career people, interns, first-year residents, would very often describe launching into their story, often described as rambling, and then getting interrupted. Like, yes. why are you calling me? Like, yeah. what's, like, what, and I don't understand what the question is. Yeah. And of course, all of these interruptions were unpleasant. Yes. And so one of the main findings from the work that I did looking at workplace telephone talk was that there are, there are things that are happening, such as interruptions or people are asking rapid fire questions, the types of things that the more seasoned trainee automatically integrates into their presentation because they know that this conversation partner requires that, mm -hmm. or they use the words that they know, well, if this is what the orthopedic resident needs to hear, I'll use the orthopedic resident's language. Yes. And in doing so, they would experience and, and deal with uh, tensions, we call them productive tensions, that were related to the power differentials that you raised already, uh, related to conveying uncertainty, and related to dealing with pushback. So pushback in the sense that people say no or don't take your viewpoint seriously without due consideration. Of course, people say no to you all the time. And as a as a consultant or as an attending physician that or a staff physician, that I've experienced that too. But pushback is sort of like, no, this patient doesn't need ICU. I'm not really going to hear your point of view. And I think what I heard is this experience of having to deal with pushback would teach junior doctors, young trainees, to actually preempt it, to do what actually Peter Nugas, who's, uh, who's a medical sociologist, who I believe is in, in McGill, selling the patient, framing things in a certain way, not in a way that's dishonest or manipulative, but actually thinking about who your audience is and pitching it to them. So if you're calling the intensive care unit about a patient, putting the vital signs that would indicate instability or hemodynamic instability early and using words that will catch their attention. Like I have a patient here in the ED, they're this old and I'm worried they're septic. These are really the vital signs right now. This is the background. This is what we've done. And this is why I need you versus the rambling story where you're like confused to not even know where people are going. And in my work, it became clear that a lot of the learning was happening through the conversations themselves the being interrupted, the being questioned, the having to justify, the making the phone call and people saying it's not urgent, when for you it's really urgent, for the whole team it's urgent. And then this pressure of letting the team down when you come back and say, I just got off the phone with a consultant who says this is not really a, an issue that they will address. And you know this as a, as a staff or attending physician, but, but they're going to come down. So I think this, this has implications for faculty development, which is why we're speaking today. Yep. This has implications for how we can support resident learning. And it has implications for how we actually 
respond to those learners who need a little bit more support, who are rambling? How do you deal with people who are rambling? How do you respectfully interrupt someone and say, can I just pause you a second, Teresa? It really helps me to have a clear clinical question up front. So if you could just tell me why you're calling me, that would help me so much rather than just, why are you calling me, Teresa? Like I can do this in a way that's respectful and still get at what I need. Or, you know what, could I just pause you a second, Teresa? You've said a lot of different things and I'm getting really, really lost. And I think I, I would like to know how sick this patient is right now. Like to really hone people in. Yes. And I think, I think experienced people do this automatically. And as you know, a lot of the work that we do, the qualitative work, is actually articulating what experts are doing so that we can mimic that and, and teach other people how to do it. And I think that that's where hopefully we can help our colleagues because I think that if you're a healthcare provider, whether you're an NP or a PA or a physician or an OT, SLP, we have so many people in our faculty of sciences, I don't want to lose anyone in this, but if you call a colleague for consultation, an IV nurse being called by a bedside nurse, for instance, for help, I think those conversations can become tortured unless we give people the tools to be able to do them well. And so whether that's a nurse calling a physician colleague because they need someone to come see a sick patient on the ward, right? Those are commonplace. And on both sides, we probably need to, you know, have uh, good strategies on either side to be able to coach the other person to either see it the way that you want it to be seen, which is from the consulting side. And on the consultant side, I think that if a colleague is asking for help, how do we respond in a way that Makes it clear that we're there to help them, but that we're confused. And, and I think those are really good conversations that can really be fostered and developed as communication is like the number one big problem that we have in healthcare sometimes, right? The Institute of Medicine report kind of highlights how important good communication is. And in simulation, we rehearse it, but then in the real-time situations, we also need to enable it. And then like, I think similarly, as you do in simulation, think about debriefing situations that didn't go well so we can support people and debriefing around a difficult situation or even the ones that went well, right? Like, so it's exactly what you did with their trainee in your story is mm-hmm. what did you say? Because you should keep saying that because that right. was amazing, right? Keep and going. so keep doing that, right? And so a lot of our trainees uh, go through life sometimes being excellent at things and no one's actually called it up, right? Like, and you have to tell Hermione Granger that she's really smart sometimes. <laughs> you know, uh, your comments really bring one thing to light uh, when you mention the importance of communication. It really niggles me very much when people call communication a soft skill because I find it so integral to clinical practice and how individuals and teams enact their expertise in team-based care. You know, for me, this, this work of looking at how people learn through talk for practice in educational settings and learning through talk from practice in the workplace really unveiled a number of synergies which or practices that happen in both areas, like framing a conversation up front so that people know what the conversation is about, like giving the one-liner. Mm-hmm. I'm calling you about a really sick patient here in the ED. I think this patient's going to need ICU admission. That there's, there are aspects of process of the conversation and content that are important, structure and strategy. Feedback is something that we build into these conversations very often that can be explicit 
but can also be disguised and implicit. And I can talk more about that in a moment. But that because these conversations, both debriefings and workplace conversations and team interactions are social processes, relationships and rapport are incredibly important as they contribute to psychological safety. And the other thing that my work has really put a light on in looking at both debriefings and workplace talk as an educational medium is the power of the why. In debriefing, we're often wanting to learn why residents or why trainees do something the way they do it. Because when we learn their mental model or learn their frame of mind and, or learn their rationale, we can either understand why they did something, now it makes sense to us, even though it wasn't obvious, or we can hear the rationale and realize where we need to work at with them so that they can have a new way of thinking about an issue so that they do the right thing. And alternatively, in clinical practice and workplace conversations, I heard again and again and again, both in my formal research interviews, but also a lot of the focus groups that I do as a faculty developer that I've done at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, where I led a faculty development unit for um, several years, is that hearing the why behind decision-making is also very powerful. So more senior physicians should share not not only what to do, but this is why you should do it. So the power of the why, unpacking trains of thought, thought processes, and making them explicit, um, very much in line, you know, sort of to the cognitive apprenticeship model, helping people learn to think like a doctor or mm-hmm. learn to think like an expert nurse is incredibly important. And I think these these synergies between educational conversations where learning is the primary goal and workplace conversations where Patient care is the primary goal, but learning happens as a byproduct. There's a lot of really good synergies there. Yeah, and I think it's really cool to think about how even as professionals, when you know, you're an experienced, seasoned person, but you're just talking to someone that is in a new function in your role, for instance, if you have a new, we have a new rehab team that comes to assess our patients. Uh, it, this is more geriatric, so not in your zone. <laughs> it doesn't probably happen in a pediatric emergency department, but in our geriatric patients, we have allied health uh, members of our team who are rehab specialists. And what they do is they come and help with assessing our patients for their fitness to go home. Right. And so this is a new team. So we had to learn a new kind of like way to consult them and to help them prioritize. Well, this person is probably going to get admitted, so they don't need to spend their time. We need to figure out, well, what are their rules of their engagement? How long does it take them? Right. Like if I can, if I'm calling them 45 minutes before the end of their shift, probably they don't have enough time. So understanding and having empathy for them as, mm-hmm. as providers on the other side of the consult is super important. And so I think that those are all sort of things that you're kind of uh, highlighting that we have to do, which is build that understanding mm-hmm. and build that mm-hmm. empathy over time. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, well, I, I had talked on, uh, I had touched on these productive conversational tensions that I found in, in one of my studies. So the, again, the, the productive conversational tensions arising from dealing with the power differentials, pushback, and and having to express uncertainty in a way that maintains trustworthiness. And the reason why those things were so powerful is because these tensions were unpleasant. It's unpleasant when someone is pushing back. It's unpleasant when someone uh, you're having to speak with someone who's way above you in the hierarchy, if you will. Um, a lot of my, my participants in the study called it un- intimidating for example. And yet we, de- we describe them as being productive because it motivated the residents to change how they spoke in terms of 
what they said and how they said it. And so the what they said was related to the medical knowledge, how to get things done, but also the social aspects of the conversation, the collegiality, the politesse, if you will. And then the other part was the how to say it, which is the rhetoric of it. How do you organize your thinking? How do you come across as persuasive? And yeah, I think in interacting with people from other professions, to use your example about the geriatrics and the team effort of determining whether someone's fit for discharge requires you to learn the lingo, learn the language of the other person, because it could be that you call someone 45 minutes before the end of their day, and yet you're able to convey the, the, the importance of this, that they will come. But you need to be mindful of that and be aware of that, which is why these, learning these conversations embedded within the context is so important. Uh, and that's why these, these mnemonics that we talked about before are helpful and yet insufficient. SBAR and ISBAR, depending on where you're listening yeah. from, is valuable and insufficient. It's not enough because yes. you need to know the context and you need to know like, how does this apply here yes, in this particular exactly. environment. And I think it's like the difference between having the ingredients for a cookbook recipe and then knowing actually all the, all the, the flair of actually being able to achieve the recipe, right? I think that what we do with these mnemonics, we break down a very complicated process uh, but then, as I revealed in my own research, and you have revealed even more uh, through yours, is that there are social forces at play that will change and mess with your recipe all the time, right? And so understanding that the fabric of those social interactions are dynamic, that they are not static, that they are contextualized, that they're dependent on, you know, like in Ireland, what's it like in the US, what's it like in Canada, what's it like, all of those microcosms, and even just even one hospital to another within the same city may have microcosms of culture that actually change stuff. It brings up to mind some of the great work that uh, one of our junior colleagues, Eve Purdy, Dr. Eve mm -hmm. Purdy, who does uh, simulation observation and ethnography and using sim as a way to explore culture has written about. Uh, her work is phenomenal. So if you're a simulation educator or someone that just loves understanding healthcare culture, I would definitely check out her work and her um, last name is spelled P-U-R-D-Y. So you could just Google Scholar her. But it's just really cool to see all of this qualitative work that really kind of puts a lens and examines exactly how we could improve our processes, but more at a humanistic level. Yeah, and I, I, I know Eve actually personally, and I am a great admirer of her work. And the value of Eve's work in part arises from both her grounding as a clinician, but her formal training as a medical anthropologist. And so she's able to apply these methods from that field to our educational questions and then shed new insights on them. And I know that what her work has been shaped greatly because she collaborates with Victoria Brazel um, in Gold Coast in Australia. So, and any, anyone who collaborates with Vic is going to have amazing work. So Exactly. We had the privilege there. of hosting her about a year ago here and she's just phenomenal. So definitely shout out to Vic as well for all of her hard work in this space. Dr. Brazel has been a force to be reckoned with and she, she sometimes guest stars on in this hemisphere by teaching in the Harvard music course as well. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, definitely a pretty cool person to hang out with if you get a chance or, or to see speak. Wow. So this has been a really great conversation. I, I love having a productive conversation with someone who loves productive conversations like, like I do. If you had to give one message to all the faculty listening to this, what's one take-home point that you think that they should incorporate in their next encounter with a learner? I would just 
remind people that, especially in the age of competency-based medical education, we can get very caught up in viewing talk and how people speak as a competency that can be assessed with a checklist, which it is. And it's also a medium of learning and how we speak, how we shape conversation greatly influences learning since talk is a medium of learning too. So turning attention to that will naturally enable and empower you to promote learning. All right. I love it. Well, thanks so much for joining me today on this episode. I hope that was just as interesting for everyone that's listening as it was for me. Probably not because I think we just have more in common <laughs> in some ways, but I think that hopefully the take-home message is still something that resonates with everyone. So yeah, thanks so well, thank, much. Thank you so much, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.